don't judge a book by its cover. So the saying goes. It applies actually literally as well as figuratively. And you'll know that if you're a reader of books. Our record church magazine this month focuses on what's called the lost art of reading. In my study I have quite a few books on the life of Elijah and quite a lot of commentaries as well. One is written by Philip Keller. It's well worth reading. It's actually out of print now, I think, but if you can get hold of a copy, it's an excellent read. However, I have one objection to it. Not the contents, but the title and the cover. For those listening to this on tape or via the landline at our residential home, it's entitled Power, The Challenge of Elijah. And it has a picture of forked lightning striking a darkened hillside. I don't know who chose the title. I should imagine it was a marketing person with no disrespect to the marketing people in Charlotte Chapel. And I believe the thought probably was that such a title and cover would sell well. After all, who isn't interested in power? Who wouldn't like to be able to stop the rain? Bring it back at will? breathe life into a dead body, call down fire from heaven. Wouldn't most of us like to be people of power, like Elijah? Isn't the challenge today to weak Christians and weak churches the challenge of power? But I want to suggest to you that if we think that, then we miss the whole point of what the real challenge of Elijah is. What is the point? Well, think again of where we started this series. If you were here at the beginning, you can get the tapes or listen on the uh, website if you've got the facility. We began by looking at what the New Testament says about James and what we are to learn from him in the little book of James. And the challenge there, the challenge of Elijah is the challenge of prayer, not power. This is what James wrote. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. It didn't rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. What is the challenge of Elijah? It is the challenge, not of power, but of prayer. For without prayer... There is no power. Sadly, I suspect that if the title of the book had been Prayer, the Challenge of Elijah, with a picture of a man crouched down with his head between his knees, probably wouldn't have sold nearly so many copies. Hundreds, thousands of people were impressed by an amazing display of divine power as they saw fire fall from a clear blue sky and consume a bull, an altar, and even the stones and the wood and the water around it. All of them fell flat on their faces and proclaimed in a loud voice, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. But then, as David pointed out to the children, when it was all over, they all went home. After it was over, only two key people remained. A king and a prophet. And only one of them, Elijah, stayed and prayed. He had a different agenda. 
from everyone else, the Lord's agenda. And that's why, as I reflected on this series and prepared for it, we called it The Man Who Prayed. And today, in the fifth in our series, we come to the theme of praying for rain, and the passage that was read to us in 1 Kings 18, 41-46. Now, it will help, as always, to have a Bible in front of you, so will you open your Bibles at page 360, if you've got a pew Bible, if not in your own Bible, as we look at these verses together before we come around the Lord's table. They've already been read to us, and I'm sure most of you got 15 out of 15 in the quiz, so don't need to review that. But notice, as we begin, that everything that Elijah did of significance, every act of power, was in answer to prayer. The withdrawal of the rain was God's judgment on Israel for her sins of idolatry. The rain withheld. In answer to prayer. And now the Lord is resolved to bring back the rain through his servant Elijah. But Elijah knows that the covenant blessing of rain cannot be restored without forgiveness for the sin which caused it. Hence the contest in Carmel, which we saw last week, is all about sacrifice with an altar and an animal. The prayers of the prophets of Baal are totally ineffective because Baal is no God and cannot forgive sin. So Elijah steps forward and prays and God answers by fire which consumes the sacrifice, the substitute, not the people. Showing that God has forgiven his wayward people. In answer to prayer, the fire falls, showing God's forgiveness. So, after the fire, what? If you and I were choreographing the, the events that happened on Carmel, I'm sure we'd have arranged it very differently, wouldn't we? Let's see. There's all these exhausted prophets gathered around after hours of prayer, the prophets of Baal, covered in blood, having cut themselves to pieces. Elijah has called the people near. He makes the sacrifice. He rebuilds it. And then he prays simply yet powerfully to the Lord is God and the fire falls from heaven and the people fall on their faces and proclaim, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. And then suddenly, torrential rain falls from the sky. And as a byproduct, stops any brush fires getting out of hand. And all the people sing and dance. Cut. End of scene. But it doesn't happen like that. You see, God's blessings are not produced like that. Of course, God could have done that, but he chose not to. God chooses to bless in answer to prayer. And only one man is willing and able to pray for the return of the rain, the restoration of God's blessings, his favour upon his people. The rain returns in answer to prayer. God's blessing. So the challenge of Elijah for us, as the New Testament points out in James 5, the challenge for us is not primarily power, the challenge is prayer. And what we're trying to learn from Elijah, the man who prayed, is how we can pray. And I simply want to identify four significant actions that Elijah took in these verses and four important lessons we can learn uh, from them. Here's the first one. It's very easy to miss for he's the only one who did it. First of all, hearing the word, hearing the voice of the Lord. Now picture the scene. The contest is over. King Ahab marched up proudly to Carmel with 450 prophets of Baal. They are now all dead. 
Where he was while the contest was going on, we don't know. Presumably standing there watching. I would imagine at this point, Ahab is pretty afraid. Afraid for his life before this formidable prophet of the Lord, Elijah. And as Elijah comes up at the end of this process and confronts him, I bet you Ahab is quaking in his boots, if they were boots or sandals or whatever in those days. What will the prophet say? The words are surprising. Verse 41, And Elijah said to Ahab, Go eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. It's surprising. Not just because Elijah doesn't cut Ahab to pieces, as happened with the prophets of Baal, It's surprising because as Elijah speaks and says there is a sound of heavy rain, there is no sound at all. There is a clear blue sky. There is no audible thunder. Only Elijah can hear the sound of heavy rain. Not because he has sharper hearing, but because he's attuned to what God is saying and what God is doing. And that is what marks him out as different from the rest. That is the secret of his ministry. He only acts and speaks on the Lord's instruction. And that is the secret of his praying. He only prays in response to what God has already said to him. You see, if you ask most people for a definition of prayer, nine out of ten people will say, prayer is talking to God. And that is what most people do when they try and pray. They talk to God about things that they want and things that we want and things that concern us. But true prayer, real prayer, always begins with listening to what God is doing. Listening to what God is saying. Elijah, his very first appearance in the book of Kings in the Bible, as the Lord God lives, literally says, as the Lord God lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain in this land except by my word. 1 Kings Uh, 17 verse 1. How does he know that? Because he's a servant standing before the Lord, listening to what the Lord is going to do. He doesn't dream this up himself. It's not his own bright idea to stop the rain. It is God's word that the prophet hears and then speaks. It's listening to what the Lord is doing. And then and only then can you declare what the Lord is doing with confidence. In fact, it is so confident that the prophet, when he speaks, often says about something that has not yet happened, uses the past tense to say that it's already happened. What scholars call a prophetic perfect. Declaring what the Lord is doing. You remember those words of Jesus, if you know the gospel, and you've probably often thought about them, when Jesus said, you know, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. How do you know what it is you're to ask then? Well, Jesus tells us in those verses in John's Gospel, he says, if you remain in me, John 15, and my words remain in you, you will ask what you will and the Father will give it to you. This was a mark of Jesus' own ministry. He could say, I only do what the Father tells me to do. I only speak what the Father tells me to speak. And it's vitally important, therefore, that we know God's word and that before we start speaking, we stop and listen to what God may be saying through his word as he applies it to particular situations. For he will never contradict his revealed word. That's why it's so important to know this book. 
And Elijah has heard the sound of rain now for many days. Ever since the Lord summoned him from the north, where it was, Zarephath, living with a widow woman for all this period, in obscurity. And finally, in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 1, after a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. And Elijah went off, and so the process was begun. Elijah hears by faith what God is going to do, and now the sound of the rain to him and him alone is getting louder. God's time is here, and he needs to respond, not just to listen to what God is doing, not just to declare what God is doing, but then thirdly, to act upon it, to acting on what the Lord is doing. So notice the second thing that Elijah did. First thing he did was hearing the word of the voice of the Lord. Secondly, seeking the presence of the Lord. Now again, I often like to read these Bible stories. It's very difficult, isn't it? If you know the Bible so well, I, I, I learnt the Bible from a very young age and I've never regretted that. I've told people in the past, the Sunday school I grew up in, you got cash prizes for learning verses of the Bible. By the time I was about 12, I knew 500 by heart. And I was a lot richer than most of my contemporaries. But the trouble with knowing the Bible is, you know what's going to happen next. It's very helpful sometimes to just put yourself, try and imagine yourself in a situation and say, supposing I didn't know this, what might happen if I didn't know the end of the story? Or what might I do if I was in that situation? And then you look what actually happened and you'll discover how far you are from the way God works and acts. So if I'd been there in Elijah's position, I think, in all honesty, I would have said to Ahab, Your Majesty, look what the Lord has done. Isn't it time to pray? Come and join me on Carmel. Let's seek the Lord together. And then we'll have a nice meal and sit down together. But notice what Elijah says in verse 42. He says, verse 41, To Ahab, go, eat and drink. There's the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink. He didn't say, oh no, if you're going to pray, I'll join you. No, he went off to eat and drink. But Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel. Why? Because Ahab has no desire to pray. No interest in prayer. He's devoid of any true spirituality. He's a king. He's interested in his kingdom. His position, not God's kingdom. He is no use in a prayer meeting because he'll be thinking about his rumbling stomach. Or looking at his watch because he doesn't want to miss the dancing girls in the Temple of Baal on STV. Samaritan television. Worse than that, he will be a hindrance in prayer and his sin will prevent any answer from heaven. Elijah is better off alone. Kings go off to eat and drink. But prophets withdraw to fast and pray. Now I'm sure that Elijah was very hungry and thirsty. I would imagine judging by how I normally feel at the end of a Sunday, he was totally exhausted. Far more so than Ahab. Yet he has a greater priority that transcends his appetites. You remember that story, that lovely story in John's Gospel, chapter 4, where the disciples come to passing through Samaria of all places, and uh, Jesus sits down by a well, and they go off into the town to get something to eat. And Jesus sits there, thirsty, because he's got an appointment, a divine appointment with a woman. And when the disciples come back, they say, Lord, here we are, we've brought a carry out. 
or whatever they had in those days. And Jesus gently rebukes them and says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. See, people who pray have a different priority in life. Two of the greatest obstacles to the blessing of God on a church is people who are not in the habit of praying and people who are in the habit of praying. What do I mean? Simply this. There are very few people who are really serious about prayer. Most of them show this by never praying. Most of them come to the big show, not the small prayer meeting. I don't want to labour the point, and I've said it enough times in this church before, but there are probably, what, seven, eight hundred of us here today? I don't know how many were there praying before the service, probably six. There'll probably be a tenth of that on Tuesday to pray for our missionaries. Now, what I'm not saying is don't all turn up next week because the pastor made you feel guilty. Some people have done that in the past. They normally last for two or three weeks than most people. Because unless you've got a hunger and desire to seek God, then you won't pray. The other problem is people are in the habit of praying. And by that I mean it's just a habit. It's just a routine they go through with little intention of serious and costly prayer. Let, let me just simply ask you a question. When was the last time as a Christian you fasted and prayed? See, Jesus, instructing his disciples, didn't say, if you fast and pray. He said, when you fast and pray. The merit of fasting, well, there are many merits in fasting, let alone health ones that some of us could do with, but spiritually I'm talking about here. One of the merits is, is that it focuses on our real priority, which is not physical food. Most of us can manage without physical food for a day or two, probably longer. Some idiot can suspend himself over the Thames for 44 days. I'm sure a few Christians can manage it. One. And only when God moves our hearts to pray will we count the cost and experience the downpour of God's blessing. Until then, Elijah's will be in the minority. Plenty at the big show, but few on the mountaintop. But let me also challenge and encourage you by saying this. It doesn't necessarily need a big crowd. I was reading an interesting article in Leadership Magazine recently, and the man said, set me thinking, he said, where have Christians got this strange idea from that the more people you have who pray, then God will answer? Listen to what Jesus said, and you need to read it differently, I think, from the way we normally read it. Matthew 18. Again, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Now, most Christians use this in prayer meetings when there ain't many people there. Been to prayer meeting? And, and quite rightly we say, Lord, there are not many of us here this evening, but your word says where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of them. Those of us who learned all these verses in the King James Version. I think what our Lord is saying is, you only need two or three. That's enough. Find a fellow Christian, I encourage you, find a fellow Christian who has a similar burden and zeal and desire to pray, who's serious about prayer, just find one. Better still find two and three of you together. Who knows what God might do? But in Elijah's case, there was just one man. A man like us, says James. And God answers. An individual withdrawing, going up the mountain to be in the secret place alone with God. Remember those telling words of Ezekiel. 
Ezekiel 22.30 I look for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it but I found none. That's the challenge of prayer. And the thing with prayer is, as our Lord said, it's secret. You may go from this place with a resolution to pray and God may touch your heart and you may pray effectively and no one will know about it but you and God. Or you'll know about it if I don't show up to preach. Where's he gone? You don't know if I pray or not at all. Only God knows that. And that's also a test of our seriousness about it because so many things we do is because other people are watching and we think, wow, they'll be really impressed if I turn up. So Elijah climbed Carmel to be alone with God, seeking the presence of God. Thirdly, third lesson, which I've called claiming the promise of the Lord. Claiming the promise of the Lord. Look what he says again in verse 42. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Now notice two things about Elijah's prayer. First of all, his posture. We told that he bent down to the ground, put his face between his knees. There's been a lot of silly speculation about this. When I was a student studying the Bible at university, I was told to read a certain supposedly learned journal which said that what Elijah was doing, this is, this is an example, this scholar said, of sympathetic magic and Elijah is imitating a cloud. Yes, it's as stupid as it sounds, isn't it? I mean, what was he doing? The obvious answer was he was abasing himself before the Lord. Notice the contrast between his public prayer and his private prayer. In his public prayer, he stood boldly before the people and the prophets of Baal and prayed aloud. Now he buries his face in his knees and we don't even know the words he prayed. What's the difference? Surely in the first place, he is speaking on behalf of the Lord as his representative. The honour of the Lord's name is at stake. He is standing up for the Lord, standing before the Lord. Now he is pleading the cause of God's people, God's wayward and sinful people. So sinful that God has removed the common blessing of rain. He's pleading the cause of God's people and like the tax collector in our Lord's Prayer in Luke chapter 18, he dare not so much lift up his face towards heaven. He's a righteous man humbling himself on behalf of the people, identifying with them. First of all, he offered a bull as a sacrifice. That offered in the Levitical law by the priest on behalf of his people. Now he humbles himself in prayer on behalf of his people. Where are the people who should be praying, as David said? They've gone home. Wow, all the way home they were saying, did you see that fire? That was just incredible. What an occasion. Wow, we'll be able to tell this to generations to our people. Just imagine that. Fantastic. Instead of humbling themselves before the Lord, they mouth the words, the Lord he is God, the Lord he is God. But they didn't pray. When King Solomon dedicated the temple, he reminded the people of what they should do when it, when it stopped raining. Very well known verse. Well, verse 14 of 2 Chronicles 7 is very well known. Most people don't quote verse 13, which precedes it, of course. When I shut up the heavens so there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. 
The people will not do it, so Elijah does it on behalf of them. In order that the Lord might hear, forgive and heal. It's a wonderful picture of what the Lord Jesus Christ did in far greater measure when he humbled himself, came into our world, laid aside his glory, identified with us and actually became, says the word of God, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, so that we might be put right with God. Thanks be to God. And now that same Lord Jesus Christ intercedes for sinners before his Father's throne. So John writes in his first letter, My dear children, I write this to you so that you do not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father on our behalf, in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He humbled himself before God. He didn't complacently. He fell on his knees, humbled before God. Let me ask you, Have you ever been in that place? See, unless we come to the place where we're truly humble before God and realize that we have no merits whatsoever, nothing in my hand I bring, says the hymn writer, simply to your cross I cling. Without that, we'll come into God's presence casually. We'll think, well, I've had a bad week, but it's not as bad as some people, and well, I'm sure it's okay, and I'll get by, and God will forgive me. Have we really humbled ourselves before God? That's his posture. Notice the second aspect of his prayer, his persistence. Puts his head between his knees and prays. He can see nothing from that position, presumably, let alone a clear blue sky which might discourage him. So he says to his servant, I like to think the servant may have been the widow woman's son who he restored to life. I have no evidence for that, but anyway. He says, go up and look towards the sea. Carmel, of course, overlooks the Mediterranean. The servant goes and scans the clear blue sky to the far horizon. He comes back and he says to Elijah, there's nothing there. Elijah says, go back and look again. Prays, goes back, comes back again. He says, there's nothing there. Third time, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. There's nothing there. There's nothing there. there." Six times. Six times, there's nothing there. That's a great mystery in prayer, isn't there? The first question is why we should pray at all if God has promised to do something anyway. The Lord has already told Elijah, I'm going to send the rain. So why does Elijah need to pray? Simply because God said he was going to do it. Roger Ellsworth, in another commentary on Elijah, which again is well worth reading, this is what he says. The fact that Elijah had a promise did not keep him from praying. God does not make promises so we will not pray, but so that we will be moved to prayer, to pray with assurance. The promises give us firm ground on which to place our prayers. You can only pray in confidence anyway. There are some things you're not sure about, but you can pray in confidence for things that God has promised to do. They're the best things of all. Look through the Bible. Find all those promises that God has promised. You can pray with confidence for things that God has promised to do. Elijah is simply claiming in prayer the promise of God. And that is why he persists in prayer. Another excellent book, probably the best I think on the life of Elijah, translated from Dutch by a Dutch pastor, theologian, M, I don't even know how to pronounce it, M.B. Van Tevier. This is what he says. The prophet pours out all the powers of his soul as he prays to the Lord and asks for a gift which God had already told him will indeed be given. Through divine revelation, 1 Kings 18 verse 1, he already knew even before he prayed that there would be rain. Even so, the prophet prays so intensely and with such energy that one would think the blessing rested entirely on his prayer. Let me say it again. 
Even so, knowing that God had promised it, the prophet prays so intensely with such energy that one would think that the blessing rested entirely on his prayer. Elijah did not regard the prayer as a mere attempt or venture, for he was asking for something that God had already promised. Still, he believed the blessings would only be given if they requested in prayer. So in the verses we sang just with the children, the Lord Jesus encouraged us, ask and it will be given. You literally in the Greek, ask and go on asking and it will be given you. Seek and go on seeking and you will find. Knock and go on knocking, the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds. To him who knocks, the door will be opened. Matthew 7, 7 to 8. We are urged to pray and to keep on praying with persistence until God gives what he has promised. It is only on the seventh time, and of course in Hebrews 7 is the number of divine perfection, that the prophet prays and the servant again scans the horizon. And this time, there's an answer. God has answered. The seventh time, the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. A wonderful thing. Clear blue sky. Scans the horizon for the seventh time. And there he sees this little tiny cloud emerging above the sea. Rising from the sea. I wonder how many of us have given up praying after the second or third time. If God has promised it, if it is based on what he has said in his word, we must keep on praying until he answers. The cloud is very small indeed. It's described as being as small as a man's hand. Another commentary worth reading, A.W. Pink comments, A man's hand had been raised in supplication and had, as it were, left its shadow on the heaven left its shadow on the heaven. It's a sign from heaven that God is going to answer. He's about to answer. It's time for Elijah finally to conclude praying and to make preparations for the storm that will follow. Notice then the fourth and final lesson that we learn from this passage. The fourth thing that Elijah did. Declaring the word of the Lord. Now that he knows, now that the promise has been fulfilled, it is time for action. And so Elijah sends a warning to King Ahab. The seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. Elijah says, go and tell Ahab. Hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. If Ahab does not move soon, his life may well be in danger. For the flash flood from the mountain will bog down the wheels of his chariot at best or at worst sweep him away. It's very significant to see how Elijah the prophet relates to the king. He is stern and uncompromising in his denunciation of the king's sin and his willfulness, his disobedience, in telling him of God's judgment. And yet at the right time, he also extends to this wicked king, the worst ever in Israel, offers of God's mercy. It's very hard if you're a preacher to keep that balance. Most of us are on the mercy and not the judgment. But we need both. First he suggests the king should eat and drink. And now he warns him of impending disaster if he does not hurry. It is a warning to leave. And finally we read that, empowered by the Lord, he runs ahead of Ahab's chariot all the way to the king's summer palace in Jezreel, which I'm told is around 16 miles. It's a pretty busy day, and I think that's one of the reasons why we'll see that Elijah collapses him mentally, emotionally and spiritually even in the final study, God willing, in a couple of weeks. He is showing the mercy of God towards Ahab. Wicked though he is, 
He is still the Lord's anointed, appointed king. And the Lord's desire is that he should be a proper king who leads the people of Israel. Now, what has he been doing wrong? What does he need to do? What does he need to put right? Here's what he needs to put right. He needs to start obeying the word of the Lord. Now, I can't be sure about this, but let me leave this as a suggestion. Why does Elijah run ahead of the chariot for 16 miles? He's not showing off and saying, Your Majesty, look how good I am at running. I think what he's doing, he knows this is a crucial time in the life of Ahab. He's going back home without his 450 prophets. He's going back home to a vindictive wife who has led him astray. And symbolically, Elijah, who embodies the word of the Lord, runs ahead of Ahab in his chariot, saying to him, Follow me! Follow the word of the Lord! It is the Lord who leads, and the king must follow must follow his servant, a warning to leave, an example to follow. Elijah knows that Jezebel is waiting. And he does all he can to win the king over, to point him in the right direction, to lead him in the way that he should go. But it's all to no avail, for Ahab does not change course. He will receive no better evidence of God's power, but still he will not turn Despite all that has happened, his course is set and he will not change. You see, I'm almost finished. We come to the Lord's table appropriately. It's possible to see God at work, to be moved even emotionally, to even make some kind of resolution you're going to do something. But the test is, when it's all over, what direction will your life take? Some of you were here last Sunday morning when God spoke powerfully to some of you individually. Some of you shared that with me, some didn't. Talked about limping between two opinions. Serving the Lord wholeheartedly. Oh, that was great. Wasn't God here last week? Yes, he was. By his grace, not by me, God spoke to us. But the proof is, where are you a week on? Has your life changed direction? You see, like Ahab, you need to leave where you are. The Bible calls it repentance, turning from your sin. And you need to head in the right direction to follow the word of the Lord. But the only proof is if you follow it through. If you follow it through. And the plea of a loving God, again through another great prophet, Ezekiel, Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? It's the plea of God to his people to change direction. To turn from the wrong way. To turn from idols and anything you worship other than the Lord. Not just to be there at the big show and shout in a loud voice, He is Lord but to put it into practice in your life by turning to the Lord and following him wholeheartedly. And maybe today is a day that God has planned to give you an opportunity to do that.
you'll find no better place than at this table because the bread and wine remind you that Christ died to restore you back to himself and to forgive you and to give you a new start. You say, I've been here before. So have I. Hundreds of times. But maybe today is a significant day in your life when you need, by God's grace, to truly repent, to turn from your sin, to turn to Christ. John the Baptist, who came in the spirit and power of Elijah, promised in the last book of the Bible, Malachi chapter 4, to turn the hearts of the people back to God. He said, repent. The axe is already at the tree, at the roots. The Lord is coming with his winnowing fork in his hand. It's time to change to the people of Israel. The Lord Jesus Christ came and said, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, and believe. And the challenge to us is to turn from our sin, to turn to Christ, and to follow him wholeheartedly. So here is an opportunity, finally, not to be missed. The word of God, in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, quoted in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, is this, Psalm 95, Hebrews 3. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Because if you do, it becomes so hard that you cannot change. You cannot turn. So if God has given you today and these days as we've been thinking about these themes, I'm concerned for us as a church and as individuals, if God has been speaking to us about this and about following him wholeheartedly, the challenge of God's word is Seize the opportunity. If God is speaking to you today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. How do you harden your hearts? Not just by rejecting God, but by saying, yeah, I know you're right, but I'm not going to do anything about it at the moment. Give me a week or two, a month or two, a year or two. It may never happen. Today, this may be an opportunity for you and for me to stop limping between two opinions, to serve the Lord wholeheartedly not to set out like Ahab on a course for which there is no other destination than a lost eternity it's that serious let's pray together